Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And a good morning to you and welcome to July 9th, sort of July 4th, I want to talk about, if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, I don't know w what it is with uh, this country, but we have reduced so many of our holidays, national holidays to, well, we've talked about this a million times, you know, to nothing more than a an excuse to uh, either eat too much or uh, drink too much or uh, spend money, uh, go shopping. And, and maybe actually that's uh, fitting because uh, in some respects, I guess that does typify who we are as a, as a nation, sort of sated consumers. But... I, yeah, oh God, guys, what is lost in the celebration of July 4th is that it is the celebration of a rebellion. It is the celebration of a protest. You know, we have had protests in Pittsburgh uh, in the last weeks, and I suspect they will continue. And that is one of the grand freedoms that America gives to its citizens. And yet, I would hazard to guess that the majority of citizens look askance at those who do protest. And the fact that we have lost sight of what the birth of this nation was about, what this nation was about, is really, again, another loss in a time when, I don't know, so many of us feel such constant loss. But the 4th of July commemorates a protest so incendiary, the Declaration of Independence, that the men who signed that document that this day celebrates were likely signing their death warrant. We often talk about their genius, their this, their that. What about their courage? <laughs> they were taking on the most powerful nation on earth. They were radicals. They were revolutionaries. They were protesting. And for years and years, and I learned this in a, a piece uh, that was an opinion piece in the uh, New York Times, that the 4th of July for long, 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 long in this nation's history was a, a, a day uh, given to protest. to measuring ourselves, the nation, up to see whether it met the standards that it had set, seeing if the mythology matched reality. And so protests were often part of Fourth of July celebration. 
abolitionists used the fourth constantly as a day of protest, not zombie-like, jingoistic patriotism, or what some see as patriotism, the fetishizing of the military and of anyone in uniform. The great 19th century abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, he had a newspaper, and he wrote in it that the fourth should be a day when every American flag is flown at half-staff or simply taken down. And he said, quote, all signs of exaltation, parade, boasting should be studiously suppressed. Why? Because as he said, you don't celebrate this country until, quote, the millions of our oppressed countrymen are emancipated. So this was an American in 18, whatever, 54, closer to 1776. Maybe historical memory hadn't been completely as obviously obliterated as it is now in 2018. It was a patriot's duty to hold the country to its principles. And that's what William Lloyd Garrison, that's what the abolitionists did. He and they would be scorned by, what, 44% of Americans today? the people who vote for Trump, the people who applaud Trump, the people who think that protest is an outrage instead of exactly what and how this nation was founded. Let me read something else. It's from 1852, and it's called The Meaning of the Fourth of July. This is in a speech given in Rochester, New York. And the speaker was Frederick Douglass, a black man. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sound of rejoicing are empty and heartless your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shout of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, which all your religious parade and solemnity are to him the slave. Mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Can you imagine what Fox News would say about somebody like him? 
to say about him now. Anybody said anything like that? And yet today, Frederick Douglass is revered as an extraordinarily courageous American and one who helped with his prodigious, brilliant work, move America in the direction of its mythology. The tradition of the 4th of July as a day, frankly, of the celebration of protest began to dissipate in the 20th century. But it is time for it to come back. That the fourth was meant, if we're going to honor the founding fathers, which is what the fourth is all about, then let us try to replicate their courage Thoreau, another revered American now. Henry David Thoreau, 1854. Actually, it was the same day that Garrison's paper came out with what he had said. Thoreau said that the moral failure of his country, the United States of America, affected him so much that it affected even his ability to enjoy the outdoors. This is Thoreau. And he said, quote, the remembrance of my country spoils my walk. I can relate to that, right? Because we are at another point in our country's history where the thought of our nation can ruin our walk, can ruin our day. So to speak out is what a patriot does, to acknowledge that. I was looking at some of the things I came across Uh, on Twitter in the last four or five days, and, and some that really moved me. This from a veteran, and he says this, and I used his word fetishizing. He says, fetishizing veterans makes me feel isolated and alien, he said as a veteran. I did a job, and I was paid to do it. I don't need special treatment or care. If America would simply provide medical care to all, then it would cover veterans' needs as well. What I want more than anything is to be like everyone else. And, to s and I am so with him, and I have a feeling he represents a lot more veterans, but this fetishizing of veterans and the military is, to me, so un-American. Did you happen to catch, um, uh, I'm just catching up because I wasn't here on Friday and I need to say some things, uh, Pruitt's resignation letter to the president? Did you catch, did you see the letter? I'm going to share the last paragraph with you because when I saw it, I couldn't believe what I was reading. You would think <laughs> I would stop being stunned. But here is Scott Pruitt ending his letter to the president, resigning his position. My desire and service to you has always been to bless you as you make important decisions for the American people. I believe you are serving as president today because of God's providence. 
I believe that same providence brought me into your service. I pray as I have served you that I have blessed you and enabled you to effectively lead the American people. Thank you again, Mr. President, for the honor of serving you. And I wish you Godspeed, your faithful friend. That is so creepy to me. That is so frightening to me. The mix of sort of adulation of this godlike figure as opposed to a sense that he was supposedly to serve we the people, which is the embodiment of our government, not the occupant of the White House at any given time. Unbelievable creep E. Okay, so I just want to say I am transfixed. I'm a wreck. I'm an anxious wreck because of the boys in the cave in Thailand. There is no way, uh, if you're human, that that story can't just be resonating with you. There's no way if you're a parent or if you love another human being or have one ounce of empathy that it's just not killing you. And the wondrousness of the fact that half of them are, are out. Um, what an extraordinary story. And I want to say I have often said that the word hero is used so indiscriminately these days by media, by the government, and usually used only for, again, the fetishization of people in uniform, as if simply by donning a uniform you become a hero, <laughs> which anyone with a brain knows is simply not true. But these rescuers, these rescuers, are true heroes. And uh, I just, I think it is, I won't be able to celebrate in any way until they're all out, but uh, wow, pretty amazing. And um, I really, I woke up at about two this morning and for some reason started to think about the boys in the cave and I couldn't get back to sleep. <laughs> I'd look to see if there was any news. I, and I, so I was able to see, I think it was at four this morning that they said the rescue was resuming. And, and now we do know that another four have made it out. Anyway, I am, I am transfixed by that story. I'm sure I'm not alone. Milton has sent me another Frederick Douglass quote. A true patriot is a lover of his country who rebukes and does not excuse its sins. Yeah. A patriot is Colin Kaepernick. And instead he is ostracized. Patriots often are. I want to also point out that people who used the power of protest, who are now considered like these huge historical personages, so much so that in fact with Martin Luther King Jr., we have a national holiday named after him. When? Martin Luther King Jr. was doing what we now honor him for. The majority of Americans vilified him. 
Check it out. <laughs> he was like Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. He was an uppity N-word. And that was the view of a majority of Americans. So when you're looking for heroes, here's my guess. If you want to know who's going to be viewed as a hero in 50 years, look at the people who are being vilified now. If you want to see who will go down in history as consequential and courageous people, look at the people who are being vilified now. There's a lot, of course, that is going on, and today uh, we will find the name of the next person who will take the Supreme Court um, into a frighteningly rightward uh, direction for the rest of my life. Um, but so much else is happening that we as American patriots should be aware of and should be protesting. And I know it's hard to keep up because it happens. I mean, right now it's happening. And I don't even know where, in what little committee conference room in some Washington, D.C. office some new rule is being written that will comfort the rich <laughs> and afflict the needy because that's now what our government is about. And we need to pay attention. Did you see what our country did um, at a recent, I mean, these are the kinds of things where it doesn't get the coverage because what, are we going to cover uh, you know, a, a gathering in Geneva, Switzerland of um, uh, government health workers from all over the globe uh, under the auspices of the World Health um, Organization? Uh in which they were drafting a resolution which was totally not controversial. It was a resolution to encourage breastfeeding. It is well known that breastfeeding is the safest and best way to feed an infant. And that formulas, in fact, especially in third world countries, can be a very dangerous way, that the mother's breast milk is the right way, right? A formula mixed with not particularly clean water doesn't do the job. And we know about immunities given to a child through mother's breast milk and all of that. So there was this gathering just the other day. And the resolution said we want governments to get the word out to the, their families, to the women, breastfeed, breastfeed, that is the best thing you can do. And don't fall for misleading marketing, you see, from companies who say, no, no, this is better. Let us sell this to you. America's representatives at that meeting went to work. 
and they tried to water that resolution down because the American representatives at that meeting were not representing the health of women. They were representing the makers of formula because that's what America and its government now do. And when their efforts to water down the resolution didn't go anywhere, they began to make threats. Listen to this. And this has been corroborated by uh, people who were there, who were aware of it, by people from other countries who were aware of it. They first went to work on Ecuador, the American delegation, because Ecuador was a sponsor of the resolution. And our representatives told the guys from Ecuador, you drop your support of this resolution or we are going to withdraw military aid. We are going to do this. We are going to cost you money. We are going to blah, blah, blah. It was unbelievable. According to the Ecuadorans, Well, here's, they were told, the United States ambassador to Ecuador told the Ecuadorans that the Trump administration would retaliate by withdrawing the military assistance it had been providing to uh, northern Ecuador, which was racked by violence spilling across the border from Colombia. And one of the Ecuadorans said, we were shocked. We were shocked because we didn't understand how such a small matter like breastfeeding could provoke such a, such a dramatic response. The Americans went after other countries as well and the intensity of the Trump administration's efforts on this seemingly non-controversial resolution stunned, stunned these public health officials from all over the globe. Meanwhile, the State Department has refused to comment, and the Department of Health and Human Services, those are the ones who, of course, are holding the babies in jail, they were the lead agency in the effort to modify this resolution. <laughs> the Americans also sought, again, unsuccessfully, a World Health Organization effort aimed at, get this, we were trying to stop this, aimed at helping poor countries obtain access to life-saving medicines. In that regard, again, they were doing the bidding of our pharmaceutical industry. You can't make this up. how vilified we are, and understandably. What a repulsive country we are right now. And I, I need to share this with you because you might not have seen it. This again the district courts, the federal district courts, which Trump is packing, it is not just the Supreme Court. One-third of all judges now sitting on a federal court right now are appointed by Donald Trump. There was a suit that was filed two years ago in Detroit saying that the public school system there were so 
overcrowded, lacking in teachers, lacking in basic resources like books and paper and pencils, classrooms that were freezing in the winter and hot as hell in the summer and infested with rats. And people went to the courts and said, this has to be unconstitutional. This is a civil rights case. Doesn't somebody born in Detroit, I mean, does a zip code decide whether or not you will be educated in this country? Hmm? This cannot judge Stephen Murphy III. Acknowledge that the conditions in the schools were devastating. That was his word. But he said not discriminatory. He said that, quote, access to literacy was not a fundamental right. I can't think of a country where that would be a judicial outcome. That's the United States of America, Friday. Did you even hear about it? Access to literacy is not a fundamental right. He said that giving students the opportunity to learn to read was of incalculable importance because some level of literacy was necessary for voting, for applying for a job, for securing a place to live. But then the judge said, quote, but those points do not necessarily make access to literacy a fundamental right. All right, so I also want to share with you another piece. I, a lot of this is like, you know, it's been piling up in my little the thing I wander around with all these scraps of paper in, and I, I just need to be able to share with you. Since last week was a little odd with my family coming through. Uh, A lot has been made of the victory in New York City of uh, the 28-year-old woman, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who will, by virtue of the fact that that's a totally Democratic district, now be on her way to Congress after the midterm elections. She was tending bar before. So a lot's been written about her. But one of the newest uh, opinion writers at the New York Times, and already one of the best, Michelle Goldberg, wrote a piece about her. I think this is easily a week old. And decided to move away from the spotlight that had been put on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which, of course, all the media were now focused on her. And what's funny, of course, is the New York Times had not even done a profile of her before she won. And she was running in New York City. The New York Times didn't even acknowledge 
Oh, in like a roundup piece, she ended up, yeah, and this, and this woman is uh, challenging in the incumbent. So the New York Times, totally out to lunch on it. And Michelle Goldberg tries to put it in perspective, tries to figure what it meant out a little bit more because people are now saying, well, this is the way the Democrats should win. She was affiliated with the, uh, with the socialists. And obviously that's the way to go. Of course, that's the way to go uh, sometimes. It's not the way to go sometimes. I mean, this idea, why I don't know why people are so lazy intellectually that there always has to be this one answer. <laughs> All right, this is now what we're going to do. Instead of taking each race, each district as unique, which invariably they are. Some districts will be flipped from Republican to Democrat by the likes of Connor Lamb, a relatively moderate Democrat. And some will be flipped by the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but it depends. And Democrats who always like to call themselves the big tent party damn well better remember it as we head into this most important midterm election. But Michelle Goldberg goes back and talks about Two women in Pittsburgh, Summer Lee and Sarah Inamorato. One's 30, one's 32. No one ever heard of them. And she talks about how they were both endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America, just like the New York winner and Goldberg tells her much bigger audience how these two Summer and Sarah took out two Costas <laughs> which is real you know David slaying Goliath stuff and she says this Goldberg. Summer Lee was open about the more than $200,000 in student loans that have weighed on her since her graduation from law school, which gave her a visceral sense, she told me, Goldberg writes, of the need for free quality education for everybody. And Goldberg tells her readers, that Lee was an African-American running in a largely white district, and she ended up with 68% of the vote. Sarah and Amarato talked openly about her father's opioid addiction, and how it had pushed her and her mother out of the middle class. And she was able to tell people in her district, I have lived the struggles of many of you in my district. And so Goldberg wonders, is this a portent that these two women who no one took seriously, one. And that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who no one took seriously, one. And all won overwhelmingly, knocking out powerful incumbent men. So 
So Goldberg, trying to make sense of this, came to Pittsburgh. And she met with the head of the Pittsburgh Democratic Socialists of America, Ariel Cohen. And she said this, and I see, I, I'm sorry, I haven't read any of this kind of thing in our own local media, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been there because I don't read absolutely everything. But I thought this was fascinating. She said, talking to Cohen and others from the DSA's Pittsburgh chapter, which, by the way, has about 600 members, that's it. They don't have money. They just got people willing to work. Grassroots up. Knocking on doors. Doing all that grunt work and look what you can get accomplished. And Michelle Goldberg says this, I was struck by the community building they do. On some days that public schools are closed, the DSA's Socialist Feminist Committee <laughs> puts on all-day events with child care and free lunches. Like several other chapters, the Pittsburgh DSA holds clinics where members change people's burned-out car brake lights for free, helping them avoid unnecessary police stops. A local mechanic named Metal Mary helped train the volunteers from the DSA so they would know how to perform that task. That's what parties, I think, used to do a hundred years ago or more. But the Democratic Party has lost its connection to the people. And these young people, these young women, are recreating what a party should be. I think, I just want to say, for those of you who I know want to get involved in some way, don't know where to turn, there's somewhere to turn. Did you know they were doing that kind of thing? Get active in the Democratic Socialists right here. Sounds pretty amazing. Got a New York Times zop-ed writer to come here, and she was clearly blown away. And the success they have had thus far. I wouldn't want to be an incumbent targeted by them. And who are they? A motley crew of patriotic citizens doing what a patriotic citizen does, which is understand and believe the words, we the people, government of, by, and for the people. They see it as their responsibility. That was, to me, an exceedingly hopeful a hopeful piece. And here's another one just for a little bit of laughs. So uh, if you trace uh, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, he's heading off to Europe, God help us, and his one-on-one -on -one with his uh, handler, uh, Putin, um, if you trace his family, you end up in a village uh, called Karlstadt, Germany. Um, 
and there's a bunch of Trumps that live in that, <laughs> in that, and they are related. I, I, a lot of people in that village are related to the president of the United States, and none of them want to talk about it. They are mortified. You know, normally if you end up being related to like the president of the United States, that's a big to-do. Eh, eh. Ursula Trump, who runs the Trump Bakery, when questioned by a reporter, said, ah. she said, her turned her palms up <coughs> and sighed. You can't choose your relatives, can you? No, they're mortified. After Trump was elected, local hotels in this little town received boycott threats and cancellations from longtime customers. Everything this guy touches is destroyed. I mean, it is just, you know, he's the opposite of Midas. It's like everything Trump embraces, like, eventually just crumbles. The local tourism office does not want to talk about him and stay, instead want to talk about the regional delicacy of pig stomach and the fact that the church organ uh, dates back to the days of Johann Sebastian Bach. We don't use his name in any way, said the head of tourism marketing. Uh, back to the Trump bakery, she said when he was inaugurated, she baked little sponge cakes covered in stars and stripes and edible pictures of him. She said it was a joke, but neighbors started boycotting the bakery and she never made, <laughs> she never made them again. <laughs> And then you got these Republican uh, senators going over to Moscow on the 4th of July. You did see that, right? And then coming back, like the, the jerk senator from my home state of Wisconsin, a guy named Johnson, he comes back. He says, you know, comes back after spending the 4th of July with the Russians. He comes back and he says, I really think we should lift these uh, uh, enough already with the sanctions. It's the 4th of July. And they're palsy-walsying it with this extraordinary, murderous, despicable killer. So, I don't know. I'm sorry, I'm trying to read something here and I'm not, not managing it. Uh, guys, I also need to tell you that I am going to take a break. I, uh, no less a personage than Eleanor Shano yesterday. For those of you who are not Pittsburghers, this is like one of, without a doubt, the first woman in broadcasting here in Pittsburgh. And she's, she's still like, I won't even hazard to think how old she is, but she looks extraordinary. She just looks extraordinary. I mean, she and I, she looks like she's my age. Maybe even less. Unbelievable. Anyway, she's a tough cookie. And um, she said, hey, you got to, you know, you got to take care of yourself. And, and my own son has said it again because I'm starting to come undone again. Sorry. And I want to be able, I need to be able to continue to do this. I'm going to take another little respite. Not a month. I'm only going to take a week. But I, um, yeah, tomorrow will be my last show uh, for a week and a day or so. We'll, I'll tell you more tomorrow. Anyway, um, it, Wednesday, I wouldn't have been here anyway because I finally got a court date. Remember when I thought my car got stolen and, in fact, it was just towed? 
and I pled not guilty? Well, so the speedy wheels of justice, I finally get my court date Wednesday. And it said I'm allowed to have an attorney, but I'm like an idiot going in without one. And I've never been to court except when my son was adopted. But I, my God. So I'm a little nervous about it, but um, yes, I'm going to plead my own case and, uh, and then I'm going to get the hell out of Dodge. Um, so that's what I'm doing. Just so as you know. All right, and then uh, just to buck us up a little bit. David Leonhart in uh, the Times today. No time for liberal despair. And he talks about, essentially, this dovetails with what I just talked about with uh, the Democratic Socialist uh, victory and, their, and, and this grassroots, the, these young people. They're mostly young. These young people doing the work, taking on the powers that be and just like the Founding Fathers did. What? You're going to make more on King George? Are you kidding me? Yeah, we are. And they won. And Summer Lee won. And Sarah won. And Alexandria won. And Leonhardt reminds us of something I've talked about a lot, How and we despair about how Democrats, the party has really effed up big time. Because they didn't do that, that grunt work. They stopped doing the grunt work. And do you want to know why we, this country now is in the thrall of a party that is a minority party that can't win a national election. Only the electoral college gives them the win. But the people, we the people, we don't want them. And he points out the history of it. He's over the last 50, 60 years. Conservatives have carefully built from the ground up institutions, think tanks. They were out of power, but they were not out of passion. And so they built up think tanks, and they did what they could they groomed judges, and most of all, they ran people for office at the lowest levels. And then they got in to the state legislatures and the governorships, and they took over the vast majority of state legislatures and governorships. And what were Democrats doing then? Um... Nothing. Nothing. Democrats are just into winning the presidency. And they can't even do that anymore. And the Republicans did this hard work, you know, when the Supreme Court was just seemed like it was going to be liberal for the rest of their lives. And that was with the Warren Court. They got to work. And he says if Democrats win more governorships and state legislatures, they can then keep Republicans from drawing these ridiculous congressional maps and infringing on African Americans' voting rights, among other things. Because the fact is, is that 
the majority of this country is moderate to, to sort of center-lefty. Moderate. The majority of Americans are. But we control nothing. And he points out that nothing in American politics matters more right now than the outcome of the midterm elections. And this literally is, and he says it, I've said it too, the fight for our lives and our country's life. We either make a big statement in November or kiss it goodbye. And we continue. Even, let's say we make a big showing. That's just the first step of a very long fight. But being Democrats, the, what we'll do is say, hey, we did that, and then we'll disappear. Our saviors might be the Democratic Socialists of America because they have what we need. And thank God they're on our side. But we need to learn from them. I have a call? Maybe. Hello, caller? Hey, Lynn. Uh... Yeah, I don't we don't have a lot of time. I did. Yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. have a lot of time. Okay. Yeah, I don't think you need to take a break. I mean, can you believe this lunacy has only gone on for barely a year and a half? Yeah. <laughs> it seems as if it's been, you know, 15 years. Uh, but, yeah, it's only, it's only been 18 months or so. Uh, so I, I don't blame you whatsoever for needing another sabbatical. Uh, and, yeah, you're right. Uh the question is, can the passion be sustained? Because, you know, if, if there had been commitment and enthusiasm in 2010, in 2014, then we wouldn't be in this situation now, even if there was a Republican in the White House. That's right. So, you know, we wouldn't be in the, the Supreme Court situation or, or uh, and all the federal appellate court judges and some of the, you know, the, the and, and having had legislation brought to a halt um, for most of President Obama's term. So, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, th maybe they got what we need, passion, commitment. Yeah, and I, I mean, these DSA people are showing us the way. But it's a yeah. long haul. It's a long fight. It is not one election, although if we don't win these midterms, I don't know if we come back. Well, you know, that's step one. It's going to be difficult. Yes. I mean, the House. I mean, I, the House seems very, very doable, and right now Democrats are are heavily favored. But the, the Senate is still difficult because right. of the way our system is set up. Well, right, and because most of the seats uh, that are up are uh, yeah, it, we, we we're democratic just seats. They're, they're democratic seats, and they're often in yeah. places that Trump won. So. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't look good for the in, Senate. In places where they have almost no people, <laughs> right? But man, if we don't fight, and and for anybody who's just not doing anything but despairing, you're part of the problem. That's the only thing I got to get through to you. <laughs> you're part of the problem. Join the DSA. Join them. You don't even have to agree with everything they're into, but join them. You know what they are? They're liberal. They're what liberal Democrats used to be. Yeah, that's all they are. But uh, yeah, take take your break. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> have a good Have a good day. Thank you, thank you, John. I appreciate it. Okay, so yeah, I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Susan should be joining us, and uh, and then I've got to yeah go away and lick my wounds a little bit, and um, I'll be. Uh, I'll be back. Just trying to get back to where I was when I, <laughs> I totally lost it. I've lost all that sense of calm. I've lost all of it. It's amazing. So, got to go recharge and hope I hope I can again. So, anyway, that's it. That's it for me. Um, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, 
Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.